out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Well, hello. Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So, um... In this episode, I'll be continuing to work my way through the fourth volume of the Selected Letters of, of H.P. Lovecraft. And um, I, I might have a little bit of an update first about what might be coming up. I might be able to extend the series a little bit um, uh, due to some family issues. I'll be returning to the United States instead of going back to Taiwan straight away. So... Um, if I can use like the interlibrary loan to once again get the fifth volume of the selected letters, which is how I looked at them before and took notes on them. I mentioned that a few times, I think, already. How I have notes on the, that, that book, but I don't have the text. Um, then I might be able to like work on the, the fifth volume in a more systematic way as well. And I, and I think those are a lot of great letters. The end of his, of his epistolatory career is, was certainly as as epic as the earlier parts of it and and maybe even more so in terms of the historical context uh, i know that some of the great letters between robert e howard and hp lovecraft were from that period so it's something i really would like to do um but you know i'll have to to work with the libraries and see if i can get the that volume so i'm not making out a promise uh and i may be too busy to do too much about it but uh We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. So anyways, the letters for, uh, that I'll be covering in this episode cover the period from July to October of 1932. So, so most of the rest of 1932. We're picking up uh, where we left off last time. Um, now, the first, as always, I'm going to look at them by correspondent, not, not strictly chronologically, um, so we can get a sense of of the back and forth and the themes that he uh, explored with certain writers and certain people he was corresponding with. So, um, you know, I think there's this, this is this felt like kind of a down when I was taking notes. It felt like kind of a down section in terms of of really really epic letters. As always, like some of the best stuffs in the Robert E. Howard letters, which as you know I'm going to be looking at in details in the future as well. Um, uh, one interesting thing here is there's some kind of there's some new correspondence talked about that that we see show up here, so, like some later life correspondence up here. Like our first one, Richard L. A. Morse, uh, who was a poet uh, who corresponded with Lovecraft uh, later in his life, and I think this is our first letter f uh, to him. We have uh, the E. Hoffman Price correspondence beginning. And I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if there's any letter from him before, maybe a couple. But he's, of course, uh, very famous for working uh, right with Lovecraft writing the sequel to The Silver Key, which is perhaps one of his most famous revisions. Uh, not the most famous, but certainly one of the most significant and famous of his revisions. So that's, um, yeah, I think that's how oh, Harold... Uh, What's that guy's name? Harold Farnes. I think that's uh, a new correspondent too. So I think we got three new correspondents in this this section showing up. 
So uh, kudos for, to the editors for, for making this one significant, at least for that reason, if, if for nothing else. So without any further uh, delay, let's jump into this. Um, so first we have a letter to Richard Morse, Richard L.A. Morse. As I said, he was a poet, um, another writer. Of course, most of the people Lovecraft is writing are other writers. Um, and he wrote in this period, we got two letters to Morse, uh, July 28th and August 8th. So pretty close, just a, a little bit over a week apart. Um, and the first, he just talks about the dangers of imitating Dunsey. It's, 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 a, it's an old theme we've seen in Lovecraft's letters before where he talks about his, how Dunsey influenced him, but also how you can't let someone else's style influence yours too much. And this is all part of a larger theme of Lovecraft finding his own kind of distinctive voice in stories like at the Mouths of Madness and the Shadow of Innsmouth, Whisper in the Darkness, stories we looked at in quite a bit of detail earlier in this podcast. Um, and this is, of course, leading to conflict with, uh, you know, like the editor of, uh, of, of Weird Tales, Farnsworth Wright, and, and just generally this feeling that he can't really fit into that market. Of course, At the Mountains of Madness wasn't published uh, initially in, in Weird Tales, um, but this is kind of part of that same theme of, of him trying to find his own distinctive Lovecraftian voice. Um, and of course, many of us are very thankful that he did find that voice because, you know, those are really great stories, obviously, and, and really influential. I was just seeing the, the Arkham Horror Living Card Game by Fantasy Flight Games. It's just releasing, going to be releasing a whole new uh, campaign expansion based on none other than that, a story none other than At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, and it seems to fit very closely to the, the text in its, in its theme. So, um, you know, if you, it's, it's actually a, kind of a golden age for, for Lovecraft games, um, if, if, you, if you're into that kind of stuff. Anyways, uh, we already talked about that story. Uh, anyways, the next letter, a week later or so to Morse, it's a little bit uh, more going on in this letter where he talks about how Wright rejected At the Moments of Madness. Um, he talks about the commercialization of weird tales. Um, this problems of getting published. A lot of more of his career frustrations we've been seeing for the last couple episodes here. So, um, you know, but then Lovecraft is at the same time is saying he's moving away from commercial standards and commercial fiction himself. He's trying to find his own voice. Um, but he does feel he's being left in the middle between the blitz literature and the pulps. And he thinks, in a way, the pulps aren't doing enough to be literature. And literature is not accepting enough of the themes and ideas being explored in pulp um, magazines. He does, does, he obviously doesn't think, you know, the literature, like what the, like the English professors are saying is literature is legit. He obviously thinks his stuff has literary value. Um, but he does think there's a growing gap between these two things. Um, the way he puts it is, actually, my stuff falls between the two stools. It is not intrinsically good enough for high-grade publication, and it's not cheaply popular enough to suit the vendors of pulp rags. Thus, I'm left high and dry as a misfit, end quote. Uh, so what a great uh, summation of Lovecraft's frustrations at being, a, uh, as he's changing his audience and his, and his voice a little bit. All right. Oh, one, one more thing about this set. There's a lot of correspondence here. Uh, I think, yeah. I think like 11 or so uh, different people he writes. Um, next, we have Clark Ashton Smith. Um, 
what do we got here? First is August 1932. Um, this one talks about a trip he took to Newport, some cheap kind of trips he, take, he took there. He, he loved to travel, uh, especially to places that had a distinctive historical kind of identity and consciousness and a special civilization. That's why he liked his trip to the South. He was why he loved the trip to Quebec. He thought these were really distinctively different places. But he, uh, his first love was the walking tours of New England. And he talks about this here. And the other thing that's really cool about this letter, I think, is how he talks about the sea. And he's, he's kind of in Newport, is looking out at the sea and looking at, and looking at Europe and thinking about Europe and thinking about the connections between Europe and the Americas and how the Atlantic is not a barrier but a, but a highway. And he kind of imagines the, the shores of Spain just across the way. And it's so thematically significant. Because it's something that he was so, um, you know, it's so, so strong in his stories is this Atlantic being this doorway for bringing in influences and ideas and values, good and bad, mostly bad from from Europe. Um, then we got to wait a little bit till October 1932 to uh, to see him write to Clark Ashton Smith. If I can find it, find my notes. Uh, yeah, he's, this is this is kind of um, this is kind of good. And basically, what he says here is there needs to be more subtlety in weird fiction, and that weird fiction is not doing enough to really be. Um, it's a little bit too more over the top, I guess, is what he's trying to say. And he's here he's talking about an argument, but made by this guy Edkins. I'm not sure what that is, um, but he does have some hope in in stories that are what we expect him to praise, I guess, like the white people, uh, the castle of Ortano, and, and, and that. So this is, if you want to get a sense of some of his influences and some of his ideas about what, at its best, weird fiction can be, this little fragment of a letter uh, can be useful to look at. Uh, so anyways, next we have two letters to Elizabeth Tolbridge. These two are, are kind of personal and not too particularly important. The first is a little bit more fun than the second, I think. Uh, the first is dated August 12th, and this really talks about right, like it's, it's very personal. It's, it's about his kind of amateur astronomy uh, interests, and he talks about viewing an eclipse, and it's kind of educating uh, Miss Tolbridge on you know, what to do, how to see, the, what you know, what to look for, and, and what amateurs will try to strive for when looking at an eclipse. He showed himself off as pretty knowledgeable on the topic. He talks about writing outside with a view, uh, another kind of personal moment there. And most interesting, he talks about the the setting of fungi from Yugoth to music, uh, and this will come up again later on in these these letters as we we see him corresponding with the person who proposed um, setting the, this music now. I'm not sure if this project was ever done or if some music was written. I, I think I saw someone release a CD, which which seemed to have been just music. I, I think maybe it was incomplete or never really performed before. Yeah, some of the music exists, so they were able to kind of reproduce it and, 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 and perform it. Um, but, you know, it's not the first time we've heard of musicians trying to adapt some of Lovecraft's works uh, into music. You know, I think there was even efforts to, to make operas. And of course, since then, there have been operas based on Lovecraft's work. 
Um, but anyways, that's we'll come back to that issue of, of the setting of the fungi from Ugraf to music. Um, and the second is just a, a discussion of of um, of a postcard that she gave him uh, at Mount Hood. So it's it's first in the first one he talks about being out, outdoors and experiencing outdoors, and this one she talks about being outdoors uh, through a through a postcard. Uh, those postcards he loved to receive. It seems he got a lot from Howard as well. I think. So speaking of that, we'll jump into the two letters to Howard here, and and I feel like I'm repeating myself, but. As always, you know, I'm going to sink my teeth really into these letters after, um, after I, you know, get back to Taiwan uh, towards the end of the series. Maybe, maybe I'll do this from America too, uh, now that I'm going to be there for a while. But anyways, it's, so I don't want to say too much about these letters, but in this case, I am going to maybe reflect on it a little bit just because these are really the highlights of this section. If you were to take out these Howard letters, these are... Uh, a more banal set of letters, frankly. So the first we have is dated August 16th. And he starts out, as so many of the letters starts out, talking about the limits of our knowledge uh, in respect to cosmic knowledge. Uh, so this is kind of his take on supernaturalism, the fears of immortality, or ideas about immortality and God and religion. It's kind of our human, limited human means of coming to terms with cosmic reality, right? That kind of basic philosophical point of Lovecraft's, um, you know, that, that he embraced. Um, but then he really gets into the, the weakness of machine culture. And as we know from other letters, and it's hinted at here as well, he thinks that as we get disconnected from our culture through the creation of this new modernist culture, this machine, as he calls it, machine culture, uh, this leads us kind of culturally adrift and therefore, you know, we're just lost uh, kind of culturally. That's why he kind of is a cultural conservative, as he thinks. Our cultural roots, even if, if wrong or toxic in some ways, is better than the alternative of just being adrift in, uh, in the sea of, of emptiness and, and the cosmic reality. But he also thinks it's unavoidable that we're going to kind of go in that direction of, of being more and more adrift. Um, so he makes some pretty bold claims here, one of which is, you know, that he's writing this about a year before, less than a year before the Nazis take power um, in Germany, and he's actually making one of his pro-fascist statements uh, where he talks about fascism as being an inevitable result of, of machine culture. He has a fairly long uh, kind of political rant here, uh, which is worth, worth taking a close look at here to dissect this. Here. However, time will tell. I, will, I greatly doubt, after all, whether the needed social changes will be brought about through the real intelligence and conscious planning of the lower orders. Perhaps it's just as well to le let them have their poison for the time being, if it does them any good. Actually, I fancy that the part played by the masses in social reorganization will be largely one of in intimidation. They cannot be expected to stand a mechanized civilization which gives them less and less chance for food, shelter, and enduring comfort. After a certain stage, they will undoubtedly begin to feel that they aren't getting enough out of the existing order to warrant their upholding it. And from their point of view, it'll be right. Then the signs of uprising will appear, and even the entrenched industrialists will recognize that something has to be done. 
Being men of sense at bottom, despite their present confused myopia, they will probably see the need for a new division of the fruits of industry and will at last call in the perfectly disinterested sociological planners, the men of broad culture and historical perspective, whom they have previously despised as mere academic theorists, who had some chance of devising workable middle courses. Rather than let an infuriated mob set up a communist state or drag society into complete anarchical chaos, the industrialists will probably consent to the enforcement of a fascistic regime under which all citizens will be insured to tolerable minimums of subsistence in exchange for orderly conduct and a willingness to labor when laboring opportunities exist. Um, end quote. And he kind of goes on and he actually makes an interesting science fiction point saying, you know, the alternative to something like he just described, a kind of industrialist-led fascist regime, is is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, or at least the way that culture eventually turns out, right? The, you know, the division between the, uh, the working class and the, the leisure classes. So, I mean, a lot there to unpack, certainly. Um, but... You know, he thinks that the the alternative is really to kind of have a bifurcated race emerging in 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 the world. Then he 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 says some other stuff on this 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 point. It's a fairly long selection, but he also mentions the bonus army here, um, and this is of course one of the last events of the Hoover administration before Roosevelt takes power. Of course, it was a a key moment in the Great Depression and the mobilization of the of working people uh, for the government to do something. Uh, now, the Bonus Army, if you didn't know, were veterans of World War One who demanded that they get their basically their pension now in 1932 when they needed it because of the Depression. Uh, and the government said, no, we're not going to do it. And eventually veterans marched on Washington, camped out there. And this went on until finally the army was sent in to dislodge the Bonus Army from from the streets of Washington. Um, and of course, when Roosevelt takes power, he does sign the Bonus Act, which does just what the Bonus Army wanted. Um, so I, I kind of wondered what Lovecraft would think about this because he seems he'd be somewhat attracted to this idea of veterans, you know, kind of getting what's due to them. I mean, he's not, he can't say they're not owed this. It is was part of their deferred salary, essentially for, for fighting. Uh, but at the same time, he, 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 he's somehow so, still so conservative, he doesn't want to have any sort of favoritism. And he still thinks that there's like a special privilege here uh, being embraced by the Bonus Army. So he's a little hostile to the Bonus Army, unfortunately. Um, but it's, I think it's coming out of just his deep, deep conservatism and his fear of, of any kind of government uh, overreach. So we got that one. Um, then we got, uh, we jump a little bit ahead and we see another letter to Howard uh, dated uh, actually October 3rd to the 7th, 1932. So this was written over several days. Um, and a lot of good stuff here, stuff about uh, games, about the physical versus mental, which is a long back and forth he has with Howard over the value of sports and games and things like football and boxing and Howard kind of promoting this and Lovecraft not seeing the value in a lot of that. Uh, he says, I do see the value of intellectual games, but not so much physical games. Um, but he does have interesting ideas about games. As much as he disregards uh, sports, he does sort of understand on some level how important they are because games, he thinks, allow people to act out civilizational conflicts. And he, and he kind of talks about fist fighting and boxing as an example of, of a 
of basically culture conflicts, historical conflicts, like the, this need for violence, this almost fascistic glorification of violence being worked out um, kind of in pantomime. Some, some interesting ideas floating around in there. If, if you know, although they do kind of veer a little bit too close to, to fascism for my comfort. Um, he, then he talks about the existence of the supernatural with him. And, you know, Lovecraft, of course, was a skeptic. He wrote skeptic articles for Houdini, for instance. Um, you know, and he, he denies the supernatural's existence. But he, he talks about different types of knowledge. Like, you got people who... He really says the real division isn't supernatural versus natural, but rather the abstract versus the technical. And he thinks the supernatural ideas, the ideas of the supernatural, come in when people only have that kind of abstract knowledge. That's valuable knowledge. That's important to have. You need it, but it also opens the door for, for the supernatural, which is why he says we actually need philosophers, because philosophers can uh, take the technical the logic, the science, the, the, the technical arts, apply them to the more abstract ideas and avoid that fall into the supernatural. If you just have the abstract ideas without the technical expertise, you're going to, to fall into the trap. But at the same time, he's not a big fan of just having the technical aspect either. He doesn't want technocrats. Uh, that's his whole complaint about machine culture. So he's, he's getting close, I think, to kind of a philosophy of knowledge here. Which, you know, as with most of these things, it would be nice if they were more well-developed, but Lovecraft wasn't a professional philosopher. He was a uh, writer who played with ideas in his, in his letters. Um, he also gets in this letter, in this letter, he gets into the dangers of social revolution um, because he thinks this will lead to kind of... It, it kind of goes back maybe to the, to the disruptive of, disruption of civilization that he's worried about generally. But he says this may lead to some social reforms. It may re lead to rethinking economics. But so he grants that. And, you know, to the degree he may be shifted to be more supportive of the New Deal later in his life. You see hints of that here where he's like, yeah, maybe some things need to be reformed. Um, we need to rethink some of our aspects of this. But he still is very fearful of social um, revolution. He actually thinks re social reforms, rethinking economics, could be a way to avoid the, the much worse case of, of social revolution. Um, then he talks about, uh, this is just some, some standard cosmic warfare, humanity's not the center of the universe, and he talks about how he's affected by the cold, which we've seen before in, in earlier letters. So overall, quite a lot going on in these two Howard letters. And as I, as I said, I normally don't focus on them too much because I kind of am saving that for later. But th these two are pretty, pretty good. And they're, they're frankly the highlight of, 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 of this set of letters. He doesn't get that uh, philosophical, that historical, you know, he doesn't get into the politics with really anyone else in this set of 20 letters I'm looking at today. All right, uh, so next we have two letters to James Ferdinand Morton, his good friend, uh, September 3rd and September 21st. Um, I don't remember these as being too important. Yeah, they're both, both about travel. Um, the one on September 3rd talks about being on a train to New Hampshire, the description of the look of the backcountry. Um, now, this is great. I love when Lovecraft does this, so this is worth a letter worth reading. 
uh, again, September 3rd, 1932, because he talks about going into the backcountry of New Hampshire. He talks about it like being, you know, in terms of like entering into a horrorscape. Now, if you remember from Whisper in Darkness, which he had written a few years before this, he does the same thing with Vermont, how Vermont's own geography becomes a source of horror for our narrator. And he does a really good job of, of kind of giving us that feel of entering into an otherworldly environment. He kind of talks about the same thing. Now, maybe he's just having his own like thought experiment here. It's probably a bunch of what's going on there. But he does present it really well as a horror story almost. And, and it's always great to see him play with it, what he's so good at in his, in his letters. Um, then for September 21st, 1932, uh, he talks about uh, the visit of Donald Wandry and some other people to Providence. So it's just some personal stuff. Um, who was it? Oh, Carl Ferdinand Strauss, um, a poet. Uh, Wandry. Maybe there's some other mentions, but just some people visited him, and he just uh, was giving an update about those visits. All right, so that's that's all for Fernand Morton this time. Usually those are good letters, but this time they're not, except for that that train ride into New Hampshire. A little bit more, um, a little, little basic. This one, though, is not. Uh, the next one, Maurice Moe. We just got one in this section of letters to Maurice Moe, uh, dated September 18th. And it's, it's, it's wild. It's like, a, it's like almost like a game he was playing with, with Moe. He's done, he's done this before. So this isn't the first time he's, he's did this. But he just does the memories of the early 20th century in the terms of little f fragments, phrases, a few words on different issues. I'll just read a bit of it to get a sense of what he's doing. This is just his reflections on his meditations on the early 20th century. Uh, vote for McKinley and Roosevelt. Will the Pan-American be as good as Chicago Fair? Put me at Buffalo. What kind of a king will the sporty Prince of Wales make now that Victoria is dead? Telephones are getting common in private houses. Successful wireless messages from Block Island. Nikola Tesla reports signals from Mars. This new metal radium seems to be queer stuff. Actually shoots off x-rays. Prudish whispers the nameless author of The Importance of Being as Earnest has died in a cheap Paris hotel. Um, and he goes on like this for... What, five pages or so? Um, but it's, it shows you just what a creative mind he has and how aware he was of, of the world around him. And uh, even during his relative youth, uh, he, he collected all these impressions and images and headlines, if you will. It's like they really like headlines. Um, and it's, it is a reflection on the turn of the century, which is... Which, it's nice. It's not just random. It's really focused on one particular period of, of history. And it goes global. It, the history that's presented here is quite global. All right. So next we have uh, Harold uh, Farness. So this is a new guy. I think uh, he wrote a handful of letters to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft replied to them. Uh, he's not a weird fiction writer, uh, not a poet. He was a composer. And a conductor. Uh, so he was born in 1890 in Monaco. Uh, I think in 1914 or so, he migrated to the United States permanently. Um, now, the 
he did this conservatory work uh, in Paris. But what's really important about him is he he adapted some of Lovecraft's ideas to music, right? So that's why he's writing to Lovecraft is is they're talking about this kind of stuff. Um, so this is kind of a highlight, I think, of this section too. Is that it's just such an interesting idea, and I think people nowadays maybe they understand how music can help enhance sort of the mood of of the so-called Cthulhu mythos. Um, but you know, at the time, it wasn't it wasn't being done. So he's he's kind of a he's kind of a significant figure in this in this way. Um, so Lovecraft was writing, and he and he says he kind of gives him a thumbnail sketch of of supernatural horror and literature that essay he wrote. Um, at this point, I, you know, like eight eight years ago or seven years ago, seven years earlier. And he says this, the importance of the literature of the unknown. And of course, Farnens being a composer of the unknown. Um, but he says the unknown is a driver of human imagination. And of course, that's something that would really be interesting to a composer, I would think. Um, but this is all retreading supernatural horror in literature. Uh, now, he also talks about the difficulty of creating a mythology. And so much is said about you know, I just said the Cthulhu mythos. Of course, that was not the creation of Lovecraft. That was the creation of like August Erleth and others. But he was creating a, uh, some kind of shared universe by this point in his career. He was making connections between his works uh, and and bringing gods from one work into other works and, and, and dropping clues here and there, given the sense that we're in the same universe. Um, but he has, he has he says how much he struggled in creating this kind of mythology, um, and he compares this to Dunsany, who who he thinks does it so well. Um, but uh, what he thinks is key here is this linking of our world with this mythology you're trying to create. He complains how he's unable to do dramatic compositions, and he's been hesitating to get involved in writing something like an opera because he doesn't think he really has the skills for that particular um, work. Um, and at the same time, he admits he's not being able to handle human characters. Uh, he thinks he's, that's, that's a weakness of his. So he's kind of, this letter kind of feels like he's introducing himself and his ideas to this composer who is interested in adapting some of his works. So anyways, a good one to check out. Um, then we jump ahead to October 12th when we get another letter to Farnes, which is um, about specifically the composition of fungi from Yugoth into a musical piece. And he also, having just said in the previous letter how he hesitates to write an opera, he actually suggests some ideas he might have for a libretto, which of course would be the textual foundation of an opera. So it's, it's one of those places that maybe Lovecraft never went, but you know, if he had, wow, that would have been great you know, to have the opera written by Lovecraft. Uh, see it perform today, you know, have a special festival for it. Um, I don't know if there must be people who have done Lovecraftian type of plays uh, and perform them, but you know, I haven't seen any of them. But to have had one by, by Lovecraft and opera, just imagine what could be done with the music, especially in the context of modernism. 
you know, an opera of the the music of Eric Zahn or something. Oh wow, so so wild. It'd be so great. But I mean, he would, he always criticized modernism, but it seems like modernist music fits so much better in you know what he's trying to do. So, anyways, that's all for that. That's all for front ends. I think we'll see more from him later. Um, so next we got Wilford Branch Tallman, uh, another longtime correspondent of Lovecraft's. Uh, this is the little. This is getting back to the theme of his frustration over over uh, commercialization of weird fiction. Uh, he talks about the problem of hack writing, hack fiction, anything art is too much based uh, is too much is becoming more of a business and and so this is the failure of commercialism the same thing he's been railing against for a while in his letters to many of his uh friends um a little bit later he writes uh to wilford blanche talman about really boring stuff proofreading symbols um and he actually talks about his desire for maybe being a proofreader and, and you know he needs money and he needs income so he's not unwilling to do that but he does talk about proofreading symbols which if you never had your book edited by a or your work edited by a professional editor who used these symbols you might not know what they are but they're all a whole special language a whole special vocabulary of proofreading symbols which you have to learn if you're ever making your way through their um, a work that's been edited writers know about it anyways Okay. Oh, now we get to it. E. Hoffman Price. Um, so E. Hoffman Price is the guy he famously had that, what was it, like a 40-hour phone conversation with, something ridiculous like that, when he was down in New Orleans. I think he talks about that in the letter, in the letter to Robert E. Howard at some point. Um, their main co collaboration... Uh, was I think they, they met in New Orleans or they, they got in touch during his other trip to the South. But their main, where the real f importance of this relationship comes, comes to us, for us, is their work on the Silver Key sequel. And we'll get to that, of course, in this podcast when we get back into the revisions. There'll be quite a few episodes down the road. But he did work on a sequel to the Silver Key with, with Price. Um, and this is actually Lovecraft's comments on that text. So he's actually giving his advice to him about how to fix up the text. He talks a little bit about what Carter should be doing, that Carter's the character. Of course, he vanishes at the end of the Silver Key. So the return of the Silver Key kind of picks up with uh, sort of what happens to Carter uh, in the aftermath. I don't know if it's a sequel that's necessary, but it's, it's certainly a good story, and we're, we're, we're glad to have it. But here we see them working out the ideas a little bit. So it's an important text in just like the textual history. This letter is an important text in the textual history of Return to the Silver Key. Um, story, which I'll just call it the Return to the Silver Key. <laughs> it's actually called Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Um, I'll probably call it whatever I want. The sequel to the Silver Key or whatever. Um, but that's what they're working on at this point. So. It's a good text on that. Um, now, the next letter, October 20th, does the same sort of stuff. It's more work on the Silver Key sequel. Um, but also, we get, interestingly, August Durleth, Lovecraft commenting on August Durleth's criticism 
of a story I love and a story a lot of people don't, uh, a story that's been often criticized, but it's one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. We haven't covered it yet in this podcast, uh, but we will shortly, um, probably in you know seven, seven, eight episodes, we'll get to it. And that would be uh, none other than Dreams in the Witch House, which I just think is a wonderful story. So imaginative, so creative. One of his best cosmic horror stories. Um, and he, he sort of complains a little bit about Derleth in this letter, but he says this. As for my dreams of the witch house, Derleth didn't say it was unsalable. In fact, he rather thought it would sell. He said it was a poor story, which is an entirely different and more lamentably important thing. I'm not sure I'd wish it to appear before something is done to it, end quote. So he talks about revising it. But what's great there is this question of, like, should it be published and will it be published? Like, if, if it shouldn't be published, it probably will be published. And if it should be published, it probably won't. And this is, I guess, again, coming back to his frustration over the state of, of weird fiction. Um, so anyways, these are good to go to if you're interested in the textual history of, of, of the Silver Key sequel. Um, next, we got Vernon Shea, two letters to Vernon Shea. Vernon Shea was uh, a younger writer who started corresponding with Lovecraft, I think in 1931. Um, I think we first met him maybe in the third volume of the Selected Letters, but, but definitely in this. Um, the first letter we have is August 13th, where we see uh, Lovecraft talking about his travels in the U.S., uh, especially New Orleans and Montreal, two of the places that really had a distinctive cultural identity that seemed to attract Lovecraft so much. He talks about his encounter with Hoffman Price and his return to Providence. So this is more of a travel log type of letter. Um, and then we have August 27th, uh, where... He's praising Vernon Shea's early novel, The Tin Roof, which I haven't read. I don't know if many people do read this anymore, but maybe it's worth checking out. Um, and he talks about basing stories on local material, which, of course, is something, uh, you know, Lovecraft was able to do. He had his own specific world and his revisions. He broadened that out a little bit to different geographies. But I think it's actually the more I read Lovecraft stuff, the more I think he is really he does really excel at locational horror, which of course carries on to modern horror. If you look at Stephen King, of course, he's also expert at taking uh, a specific geographical space and and making it the setting for horror. I mean, from his earliest works, whether it's a, a shower, uh, you know, in Carrie or a small town in Salem's Lot or the United States in a story like The Stand, he's so great at playing with geography. And and maybe we owe something to, to Lovecraft in talking about horror in this really geographical, grounded sense. Um, all right. So this brings us to our last letter, uh, which was written to Alfred Galpin on October 27th, 1932. Uh, he was the son of, of a big, rich banker uh, from Appleton. Uh, he was an... I think he was introduced to Lovecraft by Maurice Moe, who was Lovecraft's, of course, old friend. Um, but, you know, I don't know much about him. Uh, I think he's mostly well known for his correspondence. Uh, he did some musical compositions, too. Uh, some academic literary criticism and things. Um, now, there's enough letters to Galpin to form a whole volume. Uh, Produced by Hippocampus Press, 
I'm looking at the Wikipedia here, if you can't tell. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of I'm interested because he's a Wisconsin guy. And it might be worth exploring him a little bit, just as a Wisconsin guy. There's another Wisconsin guy I want to write a book about, a guy named Warren Chase, who was a weird spiritualist from the 19th century, but he also started a utopian socialist community. Um, and it's got to sit down and write. Uh, hey, once I get out of China, China's like death for, for writing. I don't know how anyone writes in this country. Anyways, what is this letter about? Well, it deals with the causes of the Great Depression, one. Uh, and we see Lovecraft, again, kind of repeating what he sort of said to Howard around the same period of time. Uh, I guess the letter to, to Howard on this point was in July, but, you know, three months, it's not a whole lot of time in the big scheme of things, uh, where he says he prefers fascism as a solution to the problems of the Great Depression, um, which, and we saw why. We've already seen him talk about it. Elsewhere, he writes, uh, for many reasons, the latter course seems to be the most reasonable, especially since the vast accumulations of the commercial oligarchs are not now used to any great extent for cultural purposes, therefore deeming both democracy and communism fallacious for Western civilization. I favor a kind of fascism, which may, whilst helping the dangerous masses at the expense of the needless rich, nevertheless preserve the essentials of traditional civilization and leave political power in the hands of a small and cultivated, though not over-rich, governing class, largely hereditary, but subject to gradual increases as other individuals rise to their cultural level. End quote. A couple of things here. One is, is, of course, he doesn't really get what fascism was in practice. He kind of had a very rough idea of what fascism means. And we'll see if this carries on as history reveals what fascism would be to the world. Um, of course, the full extent of that would not be revealed during Lovecraft's life. But, you know, there was enough to know um, in the later 30s, in the last four years of Lovecraft's life to have an understanding of what fascism really is and was but how close he gets to the point like that the problem is inequality the problem is the excessive wealth the problem uh, the problem with the great depression is one of inequality which is i think something most economists and historians essentially agree with now so he gets close to the truth but then he, he comes i think to to the radically wrong conclusions um but anyways that's lovecraft for us so uh, that's all. That's all I, I have for these, these letters. So the next set of letters will take us, if you're reading along, from November. No, we'll have a little more August to do. Or October, sorry. So October till January, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So January 1933. So we'll get into 1933. We won't get quite into Roosevelt's term, but we will get the election. I don't remember any letters really talking about it, though. So it didn't come up. And then the letters here. But of course, that's in the historical backdrop of this is this radical uh, political change. Maybe not radical, but a significant political change in the, in the United States, the beginning of the New Deal uh, around the corner. Um, so hopefully we'll see him talk more about the Great Depression and we'll see him uh, reflecting more on these, uh, what's going on around him. But, but that's it. So um, just to sum up here, I think, you know, the, the plane with the idea of musical composition for his work is great. We got a couple great letters to Howard. 
in this section. We got a lot more about travel, and we got the beginning of a, an important collaboration with E. Hoffman Price that came out of one of Lovecraft's journeys to the South. So all together, you know, now that I think about it, not a bad set of letters. It didn't impress me much when I was taking notes, but when I get to sit down and talk about them, you know, they, they things come together a little bit more just through the process of talking about this with you. So that, for that reason, I'm so thankful that you are with me on this journey. So I will uh, talk to you soon. In the meantime, if you have any comments about any of this stuff, if you read these letters and have your own opinions about it, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I haven't been getting too many emails lately. I've been getting some, like some refund scammers have got that email address. So I've been getting a lot of those, but I haven't been getting uh, too many letters from you guys. So uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and that's going to be it. Um, I will, you know, very shortly work on uh, the next set of, of 20 letters. So thanks as always for listening and I'll, I'll see you next time. Now we're strangers. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to